0: and suggest future topics and guests. Nadesh Roland is a senior fellow for political and security affairs at the National Bureau of Asian Research and a non resident fellow at the Lowy Institute. Her research focuses mainly on China's domestic, foreign, and defense policy, grand strategy, and the changes in global dynamics resulting from the rise of China. Prior to joining the NPR, Nadezh served for two decades as an analyst and senior advisor on Asian and Chinese strategic issues to the French Ministry of Defense, for which she was awarded the Medal of Honor.
1: Nadezh, welcome to Harris-Bricken's Global Law and Business.
2: Thank you very much.
1: It is a privilege to have someone with your credentials on the podcast. So thank you for being with us. Uh, We look forward to picking your brain on a number of China-related issues. To get things started, however, we'd like to learn how you got to this point in your career, in particular how your interest in China emerged. but feel free to go back as far as you want, step us through what you've been doing um, anything interesting along the way because certainly you you have been involved in quite a, a few interesting things
2: <laughs> yeah well, thank you very much for for having me on the on the podcast it's a it's a great honor to be here um, yes, why china well it you have to go back in uh, June nineteen eighty nine um, there was, I was a high school senior back then trying to figure out what my next step would be, what kind of uh, college I would want to go. And, um, uh, on Tiananmen Square in, in Beijing, there were students of my age, uh, basically, um, demonstrating for more freedom in their own country. And so that really sparked my interest. I was really interested in this um, in this country and, and in this wave for uh, freedom and democracy that we could see back then in China. And I wanted to learn more. So I decided that I'm going to start with learning the language. And so this is what really uh, started my journey Um in college in, in Paris, I went to the uh, National Institute for Inti- uh, for Oriental Languages and Cultures, um, learned Mandarin uh, for five years, and not just Mandarin, but also everything related to Chinese history, uh, literature, geopolitics, um, as well as the region too. So that that was the beginning of the of the journey, and I, as I as I grew into this um, into this environment, I realized that poetry and literature were not really my thing. I thought I was more interested in in the really in the geopolitics of the region. Uh, I had a, an excellent professor who uh, uh, who was you know. Teaching us uh, what was going on in the East and South China Seas and the contentions uh, between great powers in the region. And so that, that really caught my attention. So this is where I, I, I started to think I want to perhaps do something that's more related to these issues than the cultural or business part of the, of the China dimension.
1: It's an interesting time that you got involved in China. you said, in right around the Tiananmen time, were there other classmates? Did you find others who were who were interested, or did you feel like it struck you in a special way that you thought, you know, this is this must be my calling in life that I need to I need to follow this thread.
2: Well, I think the other students of my age back then were, I think they were very much into business mindset, you know, because this was. We were like 10 years after the reform and opening uh, of China. So there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of business to be made. It was really a, a, a great time, you know, early 1990s, um, where, where the, the economic growth of, of China was really starting to kick off. And the, the, the commercial angle was, was really important for them, and they thought, that they would learn the language to start having those business conversations, of course, and, and be in that world. And I was never interested in this uh, personally. Uh, many of them, I think uh, we, we don't have that alumni network, like most of the colleges in the U S have, unfortunately, but I have kept some sort of relations with, with some of my other students of that time. And some of them have completely shifted their interest in other areas after that. For many of us, I think we were sort of pioneers because we were interested in Chinese uh, uh, language at a time when actually it was just starting to to kick off in all domains. Um, and I think many of the, the focus was still Japan also back then. So the, the Japanese department um, was was much bigger than the Chinese department in in the college where I went um, but no really uh, for me it I, I don't know it, it was that it was the interest in those sort of big strategic questions I found that very fascinating and I my personal inclination was also maybe to I had this desire to serve, uh, so I thought for a while going into the military. I wanted to be a fighter jet pilot, um, but <laughs> that didn't last long because just the the sight of a roller coaster makes me sick. So I thought, I mean, that's probably not a good way for me to uh, you know, continue a, a pursue a career. Um, but having that. Uh, in mind, you know, being fascinated and so interested in those issues, and then realizing that it could also be a way I mean there there could but also there, there could also be a way for me to serve my country um, not necessarily wearing a, a, a uniform, but in broader national security issues and in the in the national security world. Uh, that really led me to... Twenty years into the French government, then starting as a as an analyst for the Ministry of Defense, and gradually um, going into different uh, levels of my uh, expertise, and and ending up as a as a senior advisor to the minister on on Asian issues, um, I was lucky enough to to be able to. Um, To continue to nurture this expertise throughout those years, Um, many people, many of my colleagues who have started uh, more at the lower level of expertise as analysts have then had to shift into management capacities where they basically have more administrative roles, but not so much um, this expertise um, uh, that they used to have and they have lost on the way. Um, this is a trade-off. I never was a manager, really. I never was a director of a department, but I was able to continue to deepen my expertise in looking at uh, the China issues from various angles. And um, what I'm doing now at the uh, National Bureau of Asian Research is a sort of a, it's a continuation on that journey. I, I don't do policy uh, making anymore. Um, but that Policy making streak is always important, as in think tanks we're supposed to make you know policy recommendations for policymakers. So it's a it's a nice blend, and it's a it's a nice place to be at this stage of my career now.
0: That's this is a good segue into the next question that we have for you. I started my own career in government, spent a few years working for the State Department, some of that time in Washington, some of that time overseas. And I've always had a curiosity regarding how other governments work, frankly. Uh, I remember sometimes having meetings with counterparts from embassies or, or other governments, basically. And it was always interesting to compare notes and, and to see how their work differed from from our work. You have a good vantage point, uh, I think, from which to to compare. So uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts regarding the differences, right, between what the French national security establishment looks like and what the, what the American one does, but just would also love to hear whether it's in the form of anecdotes and stories or or just in in terms of your thoughts on the subject. What's the experience like? I, I think that not just people like me who've had the experience of working within that system, but also the entire world just because of the movies and the TV series. I think a lot of people have a sense of how the U.S. government works. In the English language media environment, there's just so much available, right? I mean, I think people in England, know about our our executive branch, you know, um, people in Australia probably do. But I think at least if you don't speak the language, there might be less out there. So I'd just love to hear more about what that experience is like working in the circles of power in, in France. Uh,
2: well, first of all, there's a, a question of scale. That's pretty obvious, you know, between uh, the U.S. superpower and the uh, what has now become a middle power, I think, for France. Um, it's not as centralized that what the U.S. has. You know, you have a national security uh, advisor, national security council that is supposed to oversee all these issues. It's more dispersed in the French administration. Uh, although there has been over the last few years, uh, I think an awareness that these issues have to be somehow put at the highest political level. And supervised or, or, overseen from, from that level. Um, it's still, it's still dispersed. You will find very, uh, um, expert, uh, clusters on these issues in basically all the biggest administrations. Um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, for example, has a department that looks at, um, um, proliferation and, uh, and defense matters, and and other things. I think um, the the Ministry for uh, Economy and, and Finances also have their own sort of strategic thinkers there that think in terms of, of national uh, strategies and, and and national security. So it's it's much more diffuse, and so we do things ad hoc most of the time. Uh, so basically we're convening task forces within the administration, interagency, if you want. Um, usually under the helm of the prime minister's office. Sometimes it's under the helm of the, uh, the president's office. Sometimes it's at the lower level. I took part in task forces that I put together at the, at the level of the ministry of defense. Um, we're not, Allowed to do that theoretically because we don't have the, uh, uh, the authority to convey these, uh, these, uh, groups, but it usually works very well, uh, on specific issues where we retain, um, again, the, the main expertise in, in defense and national security issues. So it's much more flexible, um, and there, are, I think in comparison with the US we don't have the same it's also much more isolated in some way like we don't have lobbying groups pressuring the decision making as you would have in the US um on the other hand there's also maybe less communication or outside of the administration so you know this idea that in the US you have the revolving door that policymakers are looking for expertise um from think tanks and other agencies or entities outside of government. Um this is not really the culture in France. There's there are some little bits and pieces. I was part of of that too, and the Ministry of Defense is actually one of the most open to the expert world. Um, but it's not as systematic as what you would see in the US.
1: So we're recording this episode just a few days after the Anchorage summit between Secretary of State Blinken and Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. What are your thoughts on that meeting and on the current state of U.S.-China relations?
2: Huh, that's a big, big question. Big question. <laughs> yes. So starting with Anchorage and maybe then thinking about the U.S.-China relation uh, per se, Um so I think people were probably surprised by the, uh, by the tone of the discussions that happen in Anchorage. Um, usually, you know, these, uh, these dialogues are sort of scripted. Uh, there, you know, there's a protocol. Uh, I've been through some of them too, you know, so you, both part, parties agree in advance and how you're going to, things. And in this case, I think the agreement was that each delegation will have two minutes to speak in general in front of cameras. And then they would have a photo, a picture taken of the delegations, and then they will close the door and will stop the working session. And what's different with what happened in Anchorage is that many of the uh, opening remarks have actually not been for two minutes, but much longer. And that the media, uh, was called back into the room as the U.S. delegation wanted to respond to that very long, um, opening remark from, uh, the state counselor on the Chinese side. And, um, and the remarks were not really, uh, as kind of lame or flat as one would have expected in a diplomatic conversation. They were really straightforward and putting just really from the beginning, the red lines on each side. Um, I was more interested on the, on the Chinese side than the American one, because for me it was um, sort of saying the quiet part loud. From for the first time, um, in such a high level um, um, during such a high level um, discussion in public, so I think that really was uh, uh, what made it so interesting. It doesn't mean necessarily that it sh- it couldn't have happened behind the closed doors in normal times, I think. Um, for those of us who have been in such, uh, diplomatic, um, uh, meetings, things are usually said very straightforwardly as well. Um, the, again, I think the main difference was this time it happened in front of the cameras on, on public record. Um, so what does it say, uh, about, about the U.S. China relationship? It says what Everybody else already knew, which is uh, this is a a relationship that's m- more and more contentious on the basis of a competition that goes beyond you know business competition or problems about trade and and uh, unlevel playing fields. Um, this is really about the competition of systems and models, and it seems like. Beijing is now more straightforward or forthright in saying that, too, that, yes, this is what this is all about. The U.S. doesn't have the monopoly of uh, what is good for the world. China has its own solution that uh, it is ready, ready to, to share with other countries. Um, the U.S. has not the monopoly over human rights and shouldn't lecture others on that. U.S. has not the monopoly on um, what is good for other countries in terms of political systems. Um, so, again, not anything that most observers didn't know uh, about uh, the Chinese um, stance, but really set in it in a in a context in a public context now. So it's like okay, we we know what we're doing here. Um, and uh and we will not be deterred from it. so that's all. I think the tone uh, is also was probably you know surprising for many of people. i I'm sure that if if you follow what's happening around the u s china um, world, you've heard of this so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, you know, throughout last year, uh, there's been Many Chinese diplomats who have used a stronger language in social media, um, undiplomatic language, um, and so ruffling feathers in Europe, in, in Australia, in, in the US about this aggressive tone that they're using. Um, and that's contrasting with what they should do, which is be diplomatic and they're not diplomatic. Um, but i think this is again a sense of um it just reflects the uh the the self confidence that the chinese leadership now has about its own its own path and uh and doesn't want to be you know doesn't want to be told uh anymore what it needs to do um so these are things that we're going to have to deal with uh more often as China gets more powerful. It doesn't want to be uh, lectured anymore now. It's the other way around. I think it wants to lecture the other ones.
0: So there's a temptation, I think, especially here in the United States, to focus on on the U.S.-China relationship. And of course, that that in and of itself is important. It needs to be studied. I, I think what we have to be careful about is assuming that that's, that's the extent of, of the China issue. Uh, I think that Obviously, other countries have their own uh, relationships with with China, and there's variations there. And, and obviously, with when it comes to Europe, I think it's it's clear that there's some some daylight between the way that the U.S. approaches its 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 own relationship with China and the way the Europeans do. And I think that's perhaps this is a good way of framing the question. Do you think that there is increasing convergence in terms of of how Beijing is viewed? across Europe and the U.S., or are those differences perhaps deepening in Europe, perhaps a more nuanced view that as they see the way things are going in the U.S. generally, maybe people in Europe feel, well, look, it doesn't really matter what the U.S. wants. I mean, ultimately, we have to question their their level of involvement, right? is it just really make sense for us to, to align so closely with the U.S. only to then have a presidential election that shifts the way they 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 look at things, so perhaps taking that if you want us a as the the frame through which to analyze it, what can you tell us about the the relationship between Europe and china and related to that i mean do do you think there is a a conflict perhaps or a tension between the European commitment to human rights, which I think is is pretty evident. I've spent quite a bit of time in Europe, so I know that people in Europe do believe in human rights and democracy. I mean these are values that are certainly dear to them, but is there perhaps a tension between that and the way in which the relationship with with Beijing is being managed by the different countries and by the eu as a as a group
2: yeah this is this is really interesting, and it's also i mean it's so complex because as you know. Europe is not unified or united. Uh, Many different countries and member states have different views. And so that will reflect on the kinds of policies that are accepted and agreed at the EU level. Um, And Europe is not just about EU members. There are also countries in Europe that that do not belong to the EU. Um, or do not belong to the EU anymore, <laughs> like the UK. So it means that each of them will have perhaps uh, different perspectives on on the on the China related issues. Um, I think there are two sides to your question. The, the first about uh, the China US competition, and I would I really don't like to see it this way because it's not about uh, you know, only the U.S. China. I know that it it will break the heart of many Americans who are listening to this, but um, this is not what really is at the at the heart of what we're seeing here. Um, and it's not because you know the U.S. is jealous of a rising competitor that is doing things better and that is about to overtake them. And so they're so jealous and they have a temper tantrum saying, oh no, I still want to be number one. And I hate to see China rising. And so how, what, what can I do to, to make that not happening? I think this is, um, this is not what's happening here. Um, if, you, if you try as I'm trying to do with my work every day to see the world through Beijing's eyes, instead of looking at it from the receiving end. Uh, you will see that the, the the themes for competition are much broader than that and it's not, again, it's not just about um, this rivalry with the US, which is a very important component of it, obviously because of the US's position in the international system. Um, but, what China wants or what the the Chinese leadership wants um, is uh, is to achieve its rejuvenation. I mean under Xi Jinping, this this idea that uh, um, the the party state needs to be more in charge, more powerful. And the nation needs to um, go through a self-strengthening period that's almost achieved. And now now it is strong enough so that it can reclaim its status as a great power and almost a global power. So, okay. so if you start it from their angle, the only ones that are in the way are the U.S. and their allies uh, in the region, but also in Europe. So for Europe, for a long time, they felt like they were not part of this game precisely for the same reason. They felt that this is a U.S.-China competition and basically Europeans can get out of the way. Um, and yeah, you know, we, uh, because the, the nature of the EU is, um, based on being a normative power based on values and based on certain norms, including democracy and human rights, that inform everything that the EU is doing, not just in its own uh, geographic environment, but also on the global stage as much as they can, um, that there could seem to be a, a friction um, between uh this inherent um, characteristics of uh, characteristic of the EU, which is again uh, normative power and having good relations with China uh, an a liberal and authoritarian country it creates a lot of friction internally. how is it how can we continue to do business as usual when uh, China is becoming more and more aggressive when Human rights abuses are more and more obvious and blatant at a big scale. Um, and so is it possible to continue to, um, d- yeah, do business as usual, uh, have trade commercial relations, um, with China as if it was just another country? Um, this is where we are now. I don't think that the U.S completely answered that question yet. Um, The pandemic has played uh, an accelerating role in the increased awareness of um, China being a competitor. There's an EU white paper that was published last year that called China as a systemic competitor. So really placing it in this um, competition of political and governance systems Um, so we are in, we're, I think in Europe, in the, in the process of, of processing, I'm sorry, it's a repetition of words, but processing all this new of all these shifts that have happened and how to address it in order to defend, uh, protect themselves better, defend themselves better, being more proactive in some, some areas, which, May or may not converge with the American interests. Um, the other discussion uh, that is happening right now is really focusing in Europe in the quote-unquote strategic autonomy. So it's also the, it's the same idea of self-strengthening, which is also the same idea as the Biden administration's self-strengthening for the for the U.S. How how do we become better, more competitive, more innovative? so that we can you know, keep our leading edge and leading position before we do anything else. And I think this is where the the Europeans are also uh, right now. And it, it means that it's a fundamental um, recognition of, I mean, in a sense it's the China challenge pushes them to have this conversation that they should have had a while ago already. So it's not a bad thing, but it's a complex issue.
1: Let's turn to the topic of the Belt and Road Initiative. You've written extensively about it. It's certainly an area where geopolitics meets economics. And of course, in the first few years after its launch, the term was thrown around so broadly, it was easy to dismiss it as kind of China's marketing gimmick. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Is it a marketing gimmick? Is it successful? Should we be concerned about China's exerting its influence in this way? Or do we still need to wait and see?
2: Yeah, the the interesting thing about BRI is that, again, positioning yourself from external observers, when it was launched, the first reactions internationally were skepticism. It's like, oh, it's too big. How is China going to be able to finance all that? Oh, they're they're too ambitious. There's risks of uh, over... Overreaching there are risks of uh, uh, encountering pushback in those countries, etc etc so not taking it seriously and and also this idea of dispersion of oh, this oh no it's just an accumulation it's just a label that has been stuck onto a bunch of things that China was doing anyway so this this lack of um this lack of ability to take what China is doing seriously, I think it's really problematic because then it prevents you from looking at what is going on in reality. And with Belt and Road, it has been repeated over and over again. So skeptical, dismissive. And then, and then after that, just focusing on one particular facet of BRI, which is the infrastructure project because there was of course, a lot of public diplomacy from China's uh side, emphasizing on this one. And because of the trillion dollar figure that was attached to it. So everybody seized on that one. And then, of course, transformed into, oh, all of that is about debt trap diplomacy. And so uh, and then discussions about whether China is strategic and whether this is an instrument that was uh sort of. um very nefariously created to push countries into into forced debt, so that China then could then seize their assets and stuff like that. But you know, these are all straw men, really, it's because it doesn't really understand what BRI is from the beginning. Uh, what are its objectives and how is China trying to achieve these objectives? So I think it's really important to start by understanding it from Beijing's perspective. And then if you start with that, you realize that um, Belt and Road is not just about infrastructure. It has many different facets. It starts with policy coordination, okay, infrastructure building is one of them, um, financial integration, trade policies, people-to-people exchanges. Now you see that it's slightly bigger than just building bridges and ports around the world. The objective of that is to create a community of destiny or a community of shared future, as now it's translated. That also tells you that the objective is not just to build, you know, infrastructure in the developing world. What is this community for exactly? Well, I mean, there are many things that are going on that tell you that um, what what the Chinese leadership wants is basically to um, to redesign globalization in a way that's more favorable to Beijing. Uh, re-neating those connectivities with Belt and Road countries that are incidentally mostly in the developing world, um, so that um, they fall more into that um, sphere of influence that Beijing wants to create, uh, where it is the dominant power. So that will not be immediately done uh, but that coincides with this idea of rejuvenating the Chinese nation, of becoming a preponderant power in the world. Um, and if you see it this way, you see that, okay, these are little bits and pieces of a puzzle and if you put them together, you can see the bigger pattern in it. Um, and then observing this in this way, then you can decide whether it is problematic and how is it problematic really. It's not start from the starting point of China is doing something, therefore we, we should counter it. This is not an intelligent way of doing strategy. You need to understand what is being done, how exactly it is trying to achieve these objectives, see whether there are elements that of convergence or elements of competition or things that are counter to your own national interests, and then decide what to to do. The problem with BRI is really that it is a very comprehensive project. Um, And so tackling it or countering it um, forces us to think um, in in those very comprehensive way, you know, whole of government. It it immediately pushes you to to think about it in a more systematic way, not just through a little... um, Um, tit-for-tat angle, like, oh, you want to build this port in Kenya? Well, I'm going to come and say, uh, how about you build the port with the US money instead of the Chinese money? This will not be enough to deal with BRI.
0: So taking into account uh, all of what we've discussed about BRI, Europe, uh, the US, what can we look at for in the next, uh, let's say five to 10 years, right? Not too far into the into the future, but uh, in the shorter and medium term, what do we have to look out for when it comes to China? There's a lot that people worry about for sure, but what within that are issues that we really have to look out for? It's easy at the moment, right? Like after Anchorage, right? It's easy to think, well, things, the relationship between the U.S. and China is clearly heading downhill and so on and so forth. Of course, recognizing that nobody has a crystal ball. And if we did, we'd we'd all be doing different things. But um, trying to make an educated guess about where we're headed, what do you see as sort of the big headline type events that we should be on the lookout for regarding China?
2: That's another softball that you're throwing at me. So again, thinking of it through Beijing's eyes, perhaps to try to answer that question. I think what Beijing is trying to do is to, again, to create a sort of a subsystem in which China is dominant. And so I think the things to look for, things that we might expect to see more often in the coming years, are signals of this subsystem being created. And so that means perhaps an intensified partial decoupling of economies. Or partial decoupling of supply chains, partial decoupling of um, international communication strategies and networks. Um, You know, if if you push the Belt and Road idea to its uh, highest development, probably as it is imagined uh, in Beijing. what you see is uh, is again china at the center of this network of countries that are more and more interlinked with china um not just through transportation and energy infrastructure but also digital infrastructure which also means fintech which also means e-commerce uh which also means um Propagation of information, diffusion of information, media, and and things like that. Um, through to Belt and Road is attached a, a variety of connectivities, um, that are also what I put in the soft infrastructure category, you know, um, investing in higher education in, in Belt and Road countries, um, pushing for China's wealth view or um ideas within the intellectual communities of these emerging countries as well. So sowing the seeds for a generation um, of leaders in the developing world that will be much more amenable uh, to Chinese views and much more in competition with the certainties that we have had so far about our own our own liberal model. Um, um, I think it will be also intensified in international institutions where you will see more and more a divide um, happening between uh, the US and its allies and like-minded countries and and China and a coalition of countries that have uh, become more and more of its uh, partners and, and supporters in the international system. I think, in short, it's the reconstruction of a different form of globalization and perhaps of a, of a bipolar world that we're starting starting to see now. Uh, and I know that this is probably for the long term future, but you will start to see signals and elements of this being built uh, in in the short short term.
1: Nadej, it it's been wonderful having you on the podcast with us today. Before we close up, we'd love to hear from you, any recommendations you have for our listeners, something you've read, something you've listened to, watched, uh, something on point with international uh, relations or something uh, completely off the wall, whatever you'd like to share.
2: So I have um, started to read the Barbara Demick's um, uh, Eat the Buddha uh, book, and it's about uh, what's going on in Tibet or what has been going on in Tibet um i've i'm I'm not to the to the end yet, so I cannot tell how good it is. I can tell you that the first chapters are quite interesting. It's very well written, it's engaging, and it sheds a, a little light on on uh, on this worldview that we we'll discuss today uh, from from Beijing's perspective.
1: Excellent, thank you. Fred, what do you have for us today?
0: So I have one episode to go, so I will also withhold final judgment on my recommendation. But I've been watching uh, a series on Netflix uh, on the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. And I believe that's the the title as well, the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. For anyone who's not familiar with this case, this was a toddler from England that was, well, nobody knows for sure, but it is speculated that she was kidnapped while she was vacationing with her family in Portugal, and I read a bit about this case. I remember when this first became news. Remember hearing about it. but I mean there's a lot of angles that make this a good watch. I mean it's just it's just a fascinating, tragic story. I mean heartbreaking story. but looking at it from from our perspective as internationalists, trying to give it a, a bit of a, of a focus, well, one thing that I find interesting. Well, let's put it this way. When you take a, a vacation, most of the time, right, things are going to go well. You're going to be staying at your hotels and you're going to be often in a very protected bubble just, just because of the nature of, of, of tourism and just because of statistics, right? I mean, the, the probability that something is going to happen to you is is, is low, really. But then, when when things go wrong, right? I mean, you can find yourself dealing with a with a strange legal system, and and, and a lot of what happened with this case, a lot of the uh, interesting subplots have to had to do with that, right? The fact that the Portuguese have have a system that's different in many ways from the English system that created a lot of tension between the uh, the authorities and and the family, and and just served as a reminder, right? That whenever we live or travel overseas, right, where we're, we're going into into new and, and, and strange worlds sometimes. But but in any case, it was just interesting to see that aspect of it, right? Like that very fundamental tension, right, between uh, tourists from one country going to another and having to find themselves dealing with such a tragic, uh, emotionally draining event. So uh, the disappearance of Madeline McCann on Netflix.
1: And Jonathan, what about you? I'm recommending something in the geopolitical category today. It's a newsletter called India Log uh, by Aman Thacker. This was something Fred put me onto. So, Fred, thanks for letting me steal this from you. Um, and this is a weekly newsletter that comes every Monday to my inbox. Uh, and uh, Aman analyzes the biggest policy developments in India. So, his, his aim is to give you quality analysis. Uh, which I find a great alternative to trying to comb through newspapers. Right, I mean, I, I tend to get stuck figuring out which which newspapers I want to read uh, online, of course, these days, and figuring out, uh, you know, what's the slant. I have to get my my media chart bias out so I can figure out am I being fed a line. You know, I, I like to read things from both sides of the spectrum, and this is, this is a, a pretty balanced rundown, uh, as far as I can tell of what's going on in India, right? Big policy developments, big political developments, big, and to some extent, business developments. And it's probably a, let say a 20 minute read. Uh, so it's, a, it's not a two minute read. Um, and so you really need to have some time to dig into it because the the analysis he gives is, is quite good over, let's say eight to 10 topics every week. So I recommend that, um, I'm, I'm going to give the URL here and we'll give it, of course, in our post, Uh, For those who get this online, um, it's indialog.substack.com. That's how you can subscribe. There's another India Log institution in India that's not the same thing. And they also have a newsletter. I haven't looked at it, but it's probably not as good. So I want to make sure you get to the right place uh, because this is very thorough, very well done, and uh, hope that you enjoy it as I've been enjoying it. With that, Nadej, we want to thank you again for being with us. We've absolutely loved it. We hope we can check in with you. We love talking China. We could talk China all the time. And we appreciate others who uh, I I find it refreshing because I I get bogged down in in having to get my contracts written and out the door. And I don't get to think uh, from a real high strategic perspective all the time about what's going on in China. So appreciate your insight today and and, uh, certainly look forward to following your work.
2: Thank you so much. It was uh, was great. I hope... I hope it wasn't too strategic and, and too abstract. I, I'm aware that these things can lead us to almost phys- philosophical or political philosophy, uh, you know, venturing out. But, um, I think it's really important to, uh, to have these conversations, even for people who are not doing this on a, on a daily basis. And thank you for the opportunity.
1: We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Steven Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.